morning, church family. I hope we've prayed, asking that Lord would speak and that his church would be built, this church would be built, his church universal would be built, and that his glory would fill the earth. And that's really the heart behind this passage that we're in this morning, that Paul desires to take the word of God, the name of Christ, where he is not yet named. And so I'm eager to open up this passage with us. And, and although it is a passage on mission, it's a passage on evangelism, it's even more so a passage on worship, as I hope that we'll see as we read our passage. Our passage is in Romans chapter 15, and I invite you to follow along. It's a, it's a lengthy passage, uh, so follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 14. Words will be up on the screen. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus then. I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way from Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul begins this concluding word to the Romans similarly to how he started the letter. Hard to believe that uh, we are now coming to the end. We 
seems like, at least in my mind, yesterday we were in Romans chapter 1. Um, but yet he comes in, in sort of a bookend fashion and, and expounds a little bit more of what he began to say at the very beginning of the letter and now is getting really to the purpose for why he has written. He, he begins at the, at the beginning of the letter of commending the church in Rome for their faith. In fact, he says in, in chapter 1 verse 8 that their faith is heard of around the world. And he thanks God for that. Well, here in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul expounds upon the character of this faith. He says, you yourselves are are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. He says, for that reason, I'm I'm satisfied or or I am encouraged about you is really the, the idea. Or I commend you. They're well taught. This, this church, he says, is essentially mature in the faith. They're, they're doing what's truly good in God's sight. And though not a perfect church, we, we've seen where they've struggled, this church is healthy and it's vibrant. And he thanks God for these believers. A church full of people he's yet, for the most part, to have ever met. met. But he's heard of them. He wants to partner with them, as we will find. And this is really the main reason that Paul writes to the church in Rome and longs to visit them. As he's already stated, he desires to be encouraged in the faith with them. He he wants to share the gospel with them and be mutually encouraged. That's what he says in in the first chapter. But here he, he, he expounds upon that and says that he wishes to partner with them. Partner with them in taking the gospel where Christ is yet to be named. This is explicit what he, explicitly of what he says in verse 20. He, he shares his gospel ambition by saying that he wants to preach the gospel where Christ has not yet been named. So he tells them, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. It's quite the... Uh, missionary support letter, if you think of it. Uh, Most people, in fact, I think we have a a sample letter that I even wrote uh, for those who want to go on a mission trip. Um, It's not um, 16 chapters uh, and and the first 11 being rich in theology. Um, It's not written this way. It's it's probably a combination of chapter 1 and and, and chapter 15. Uh, And we just kind of give lip service and, uh, and, and I'm not encouraging you necessarily to try to replicate the book of Romans for those of you who are maybe writing support letters for a future mission trip. But there is something instructive here to see. Something instructive that Paul's mission arises out of a rich and, rich and deep theology. His mission is driven by his worship, as we're going to see. And here in this portion of Scripture, we're given insight into the the missionary heart of Paul. We're going to discover what what really drives him. What is the driving motivation for evangelism and missions? What really is it? Where is it that he draws his strength for his mission efforts? What are truly his priorities? And even, what is his ambition? even if his ambitions aren't fully realized. We see God's missionary strategy in and through 
the Apostle Paul. But more specifically, where I want to draw our attention to in and through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom of which Paul is a part of. God's mission strategy arises out of a worshiping community. A worshiping community who loves him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it is through this worshiping community that is belting with praises and honoring him and singing and making melody in their hearts to one another that the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ is propelled out of the walls of this church. So as we think about how this passage applies to us, what I want us to see here, Paul's writing to a healthy church, a, a vibrant church. Well, by God's grace, I believe that God has made us a healthy church. We're much like the church in Rome. We're, we're not perfect either. Stick around just long enough and you'll, you'll see areas that we need to grow and where we're weak and where we, we must surrender, and maybe even repent. But by God's grace, we're, we're healthy. I truly believe is, is, is you look around the, this room and you listen to the people and the, and the members of this body, we truly want to do what's good in God's sight. And we want to please Him. We're being well taught as the Word is expounded in, in various avenues at different levels throughout the church and, and in such a way that this church is able to instruct one another. And encourage one another in the faith. And so what I think we see here, very much like the church in Rome, we're, we're well suited. We're well positioned to partner and send out those called to take the gospel where Christ is yet to be named. We're in that position. And what an incredible responsibility it is. We must be found faithful. We must be found good stewards of what God has blessed us with. It's not just so that we can entertain ourselves and, and become, as Paul will say elsewhere, puffed up with knowledge. No, if we are growing in our knowledge of theology but aren't growing in our heart of worship, we're missing it. And if we grow in our heart of worship, our mission will be expanded. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. So as we consider Paul's exhortation to the church in Rome, consider it his exhortation to us, the Spirit of God speaking through him to us, exhorting Oak Park Baptist Church to partner in mission like this, to partner in a way that exemplifies God's strategy for making his name known in all the earth. Well, what does that look like? What, what characteristics mark such missions efforts? Well, as I look in this text, I see four characteristics that must characterize us and characterize our evangelism, our, our mission. And the first is that our mission is to be fueled by worship. Second, it is to be dependent upon Christ. Third, supported with funds. And fourth, engaged in prayer. Paul's mission's efforts uh, reflect those characteristics. And that's what he's calling the church in Rome to partner with him in. So let's consider the first one. Our mission efforts. And, and really this first one's not just first in order. It's first in priority. And it in, in every sense of the word transcends everything else. Everything else flows and is undergirded by worship we're going to see. And so by way of reminder, Paul explains the motive behind his mission efforts. 
And this underlying motive is his all-consuming passion for the glory of God to be made known in Christ and all the world. And this is important for us to understand. The mission of preaching the gospel isn't an end in itself. It's a means to something far greater. It's a means to a greater goal, a greater ultimate good that Paul is getting after. And that goal, that good, is that every crevice of the earth is filled with the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now just turn to the passage and, and look and consider the, the, the worshipful language that Paul uses to describe his ministry. He uses sacrificial and priestly language. Look here in, in verse 15 through, through uh, 16. He says, but on some points I've written you very boldly. Just think maybe Romans 9. By way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God. Notice here, to be a minister of Christ Jesus. That word minister is a priestly term used to speak of priests and, and, and engaging in their, their priestly service in the temple and facilitating the worship of the, of the people of God in the Old Testament. He sees himself as a priest of Christ Jesus. It's used also in Hebrews 8.2 to describe Jesus' priestly service in the heavenly temple as our high priest and mediator before God. Paul goes on and he says, I'm a minister, and in a sense repeats himself, in the priestly service of the gospel. He doesn't offer sacrifices, he offers the gospel. He is offering his life and giving himself in the preaching and ministering of the gospel, so that, what? The offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The picture is here, he is going out, and he is, he is preaching the gospel, ministering in the name of Christ. He is a mediator, he is a priest out of worship of God. And he seeks to bring in the obedience of the, of the nations, that they may too trust Christ, and he, and he envisions them offering to God, pointing them to God as a sweet-smelling fragrance to the throne room of God. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he brings the weightiness of this task to bear. Here he's, in Romans, he's emphasizing the, the positive aspects, that, that sweet, acceptable fragrance that comes to the throne room of God. But he also notices when he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3 that when he is a minister, a mediator of the New, Testament, or the, uh, of the new Covenant, that to some it's the fragrance of death. And to others, the fragrance of life. What a weighty task he has. He says, who is sufficient for these things? But for those who believe, those who, as he says, come to obedience of faith, he understands his mission as part of his worship. It's an overflow of it. Do you see that? He sees his mission as an outflow of his worship. And, and so Paul understood that the goal of missions is the rightful honor and praise and worship of the true and living God. In other words, Paul put evangelism in its proper place. You know, when you look out in the lobby, you can't look right now. Everybody's heads went up. You can't see right now. But when you go out there, 
you see what we're all about. You see the mission of the church. Loving Jesus, loving people, helping people love Jesus. How do we do that? Worship, community, discipleship, mission. And there's a real sense and a real purpose behind why worship is first. Because it's primary. We are primarily a worshiping community. Every Sunday, Pastor Chris comes up and he says, let us come to God and worship. And he opens up a, a psalm or, or a passage that will direct our thoughts off our minds and off ourselves and onto God. And there's a real sense of why mission is last. Because mission is an outflow of all those other things that come in. And Paul understood that. And that's reflective in, in what he is explaining here. And so Paul put evangelism in its proper place. Contrary to what we, we might expect, we might think that he would say, that's the number one thing. Everything the church does is for the sake of evangelism. That's not what he thinks. He doesn't view evangelism as the number one thing on God's agenda. Now some of you are like, whoa, 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 where are we going here? Just listen. He doesn't see evangelism as the primary thing. Worship is. Worship is. And if you do not have worship, whatever you're doing is not evangelism. These things not only must be connected, but they must be put in their proper place. Because if you move them around, and I think the church has a temptation to do that. I think our, our, I see it amongst preachers, people, even at times our denomination and rallying us rightfully to reach the nations, we'll sacrifice worship. We'll sacrifice good theology because it doesn't matter as long as we're so-called reaching people. Is kind of the, the mindset. Well, Paul knows nothing of that. Hence the entire book of Romans. No, he understands that the church is to be the place where God and Christ are worshipped. Where they're worshipped as prescribed in his word. And so often the church can become the place where we cater to human sensibilities. What appeals to us? What, what might get more people in? And if we do what God says, and if we say what God says, well, that won't help our number one mission, which is reaching people. And it actually is a human way of thinking, and it goes against what we're trying to do. We don't want to make worship about us and our agenda. No as Paul says here, why is his what's his ambition? That Christ might be named. That Christ might be worshipped. That's the primary agenda that drives our mission. And ironically, in many cases, the worship of God can be eclipsed in the name of evangelism. And the tragic consequence of such misplacement is that evangelism then doesn't actually happen. It doesn't, that doesn't happen immediately, but over a generation. And in fact, if I were to assess kind of what has happened to Christian church over a, of a half century was a great motive and desire for evangelism that began to water down and, and trump all theology, all worship. And then we raised up a generation that actually had lost the gospel. And we had so truncated the gospel into God loves you and wants a wonderful plan for your life. That we stopped actually reaching people. 
And what we brought them in was to a dog and pony show rather than to enter the presence of a holy and living God. And that's what's the hot burning passion under Paul's mission. And that's what's driven missionaries throughout all of Christian history to give their life for the gospel is the glory of God because they have tasted and seen. Are we giving people something to savor? Are we giving them Christ? The tragic consequence is that if we don't do that, even out of a good motive of, of evangelism, we'll undergird, we'll undercut not only our evangelism, but the worship of God. But when we rightly worship and extol Christ, even the unbeliever who's present, and maybe you're here today and, 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 and you don't know Christ. As we sing, you stand stone cold, just watching everybody else. You, you don't see, and you don't feel, and you don't engage, and you don't love like everyone else here, and, and you don't know Christ. Even as an unbeliever is present, the worship of God's people when rightfully extolling Christ has an impact on them and it has a purpose for them and actually calls them to account. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says that the unbeliever in your midst, when worship is done rightly and orderly as God has prescribed, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. In other words, we're not being very secret sensitive. We're making him very uncomfortable. And that's what we want, because when his, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, when he feels that, whoa, I am in the presence of the living God, he falls on his face, and he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what we want. We want people to come in here and stand in awe and reverence of our God. Not think, well, that was cool. That was awesome. Worship is not only Paul's goal, though, in preaching the gospel, but it's the fuel which drives him in his preaching. And so it must be the same for us, brothers and sisters. If we want to see the gospel go forth from this church, we must see to it that we dive ever deeper into the things of God and that we stretch ever higher in our heights of worship. That is what truly stirs and fans the flame of a gospel-sending church, of a gospel-bearing missionary. I love how John Piper powerfully explains this principle in his book, let the nations be glad. I've got the quote. It's, it's somewhat lengthy, so I've got it up on the screen for you. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God. Missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship ab abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Let the Lord reign. Let the earth rejoice. 
Let the many coastlands be glad. But worship is also the fuel for missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You cannot commend that which you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. Missions begins and ends in worship. Your pastors, we have lots of discussions about how do we mobilize the church. And there's lots of ways and practical things that we can do. But you know what the number one way to mobilize the church for mission? Is to call the church to worship. That's the number one means. Because if you cannot say, I love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, how are you going to appeal to anybody else to love him as well? If you're not excited about him, how is anybody else going to be excited? You can't conjure that up. And so it's not so much, oh yes, I know we fear. Yes, I know it sometimes we're not well equipped. But really, behind it all is that we don't love much. Because if we love much, we would tell much. We would tell much. And you know that in your everyday life, don't you? That what you love most, you tell a lot about. Let me tell you about what I'm doing. Let me tell you what I'm, I'm, I'm reading. Let me tell you what my kids are doing, my grandkids are doing. Let me tell you about the opportunities that I have. Let me ask you, are, are all those things arising out of your love and devotion to Christ? And I'm not saying those things are contradictory necessarily. But do you see your whole life as worship unto him? Are you gripped by him? Because that's whom he's seeking. I mean, this is actually just what Jesus says to the woman at the well. What is evangelism? The Father's seeking true worshipers. That's what he's seeking, not false worshipers. True worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. Are you a true worshiper? Do you worship when you come here? Do you love Christ? Do you extol his name? Do you cherish him and say, I would rather have him than all riches? That he is the treasure worth giving up all things to obtain. He is the costly pearl that I would sell all my possessions to buy. Do you see him that way? That people would look at us and say, man, that church at Oak Park Baptist, they love Jesus in such a way that it's not phony. Something's going on in there. I have been there and I have seen truly God is among this people. That's what Paul is embodying in his language here. Why he's eager to partner with the church in Rome, because he says, I want you to be a part of that with me. And so as it was for Paul, let it be for us that worship fuels our mission efforts. All the things that we want to do, may it arise from what happens here every morning. But not only that, our mission efforts must be dependent upon Christ. And you can see how this directly flows out of worship. We must be utterly dependent and yielded to Christ. Seeing that we can do nothing on our own apart from Him. This is what Paul's getting after in verses 17 through 21. And he, and he declares, in a sense, where his pride's at. And this is the only sense in which Christians can be prideful. Let the man who boasts, boasts. That he knows the Lord. And here Paul describes or declares his pride or his boast 
and where it's found. And, and notice that he, it's not in himself nor in his own accomplishments, rather that it, it's in Christ. Look at, look at what he says, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. And, he, and he's talking about his evangelistic work, his, his missions efforts. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Paul is so overly consumed, so dependent upon Christ, that I don't have time to talk about anything else other than what he has done through me. What would it be like if we had a church, a cluster, People said, I would not dare to speak of anything other than what Christ has accomplished through me. That my only boast is in him. That's what Paul is modeling for us here. Well, what does he mean that he boasts in his work for God? Well, he's not giving what, what, what we might call a humble brag. You know what a humble brag is? Humble brag is, is one of these like, oh, no, you know. I don't need, no, no more praises. You know, no, it's all glory to God. It's all glory to God. Yeah, I know. It was awesome, wasn't it? I was awesome. Um, I really killed it there. That sermon, um, that book I wrote, and, uh, you know, and, and we, 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 or that, that, that opportunity that has been brought. You know, we can so easily begin to cloak our pride in a a veneer of, of giving glory to God. And we only know our hearts, right? But Paul, he's not humble bragging. That's not what he's doing. No, he's truly deflecting all praise and honor to Christ as the one who not only called him to be an apostle, but who has empowered him for gospel proclamation. That's what he's doing. I can't speak of anything that I have accomplished. And I won't. I will only speak of what Christ has accomplished. And there is a genuineness here, a, a humility that is reflected out of a deep dependence upon Christ. So Paul, he knew who he was apart from Christ. Had a deep self-awareness in all how we all need that. I love Paul's testimony in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-16. through 16. I've got it up on the screen. This is this sense of who Paul understood him to be. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer. Do you thank him for how he has loved you and, and entrusted things to you? Though formerly, you were a blasphemer. Paul goes on, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I was an opponent of Christ. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and it is deserving of full acceptance. He means everybody needs to say yes and amen to this in the, in the congregation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we should say of, of whom I am the foremost. Do you say that? Christ came to save sinners and I'm the one. I'm the foremost of them. I'm the premier example because I know the deep ugliness of my heart. 
Paul did. He says, I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's the heart of one dependent upon Christ. That we know who we are. That I was lost, but he has found me. That I was a a, a blasphemer. I was an opponent. I was a sham. I was a glory stealer. And yet he showed me mercy. Why? So that he may get glory and that he saves sinners like me. You are not unique in that you are a sinner, but yet you are unique in how you have sinned. But yet there will be others who are like you, and God will get glory because he shows he saves sinners like them in you. Do you see that? So every time we hear one of these stories, it's, a, it's, it's the same gospel. It's the same grace. It's the same Lord. But yet it's a different avenue of getting there, isn't it? Of one who did not name the name of Christ, but this is how the name of Christ laid hold of them. And we'll do well to remember who we were. Because when we remember who we are, we understand his great glory and his grace and his mercy that has been extended to us. And then how could we ever boast of anything on of ourselves? Coming back to our text, this is why Paul says that in verse 18. I'm not, I'm not going to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And in Paul's case, Christ had done much. Paul had been sent to the Gentiles and he had seen them come to the obedience of faith. How? Well, he says it in verse 18. By word and deed. By speaking and living. Christ accomplished this. He goes on to speak that as an apostle he did this through signs and wonders. And this all by the power of the Spirit of God. Simply put, Paul was a man utterly yielded to God the Holy Spirit. It was Christ working through the Spirit which enabled Paul to preach the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Elycrium. And I struggle to say that every single time. It's over a thousand mile journey of regions, of, of areas by which he's preached. Just imagine, just go in your Google Maps, not right now on your phone, but look at Jerusalem and say, take me to Greece. Paul's traveled. And he says, that's, that's not my own doing. That's what Christ has done through me. In every place I've gone, yes, I've been received with beatings, but yet some were persuaded and some believed. So what does it look like to be dependent upon the Spirit and His power? Well, truly, this could be a whole sermon series. But I won't do that to you today. What does it look like? Write these down. They're not on the screen. It looks like, particularly think in a missions context, depending on the Spirit's means. That is, preaching Christ crucified. It looks like depending on the Spirit's filling, that is embodying the Word of Christ in our life, where the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. 
It looks like depending on the Spirit's leading, that is, communion with God in prayer and worship. And it looks like depending on the Spirit's promises, what God has said He would do in His Word. Being dependent upon the Spirit means trusting and depending the Spirit's means, the Spirit's filling, the Spirit's leading, and the Spirit's promises. And Paul knows that he can do nothing unless he is walking by the Spirit, under his power, in the name of Christ. And that he trusts the Spirit is evident as he quotes Isaiah 52, 15 and verse 21. He says, I I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not named because in his particular calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, he was not to be a a, a stay-at-home pastor. He was to stay and establish something and move to the new territories. And this was the promise that he was banking on. Those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Do you believe that? Do you wrestle with the scripture in such a way that you lay hold of those promises? Not for yourself. This isn't a name it and claim it kind of game. No, this is a lay hold of this promise that people will praise your name. That you will receive glory. That your name will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I believe your promises because I have have seen you work them out in your word. And just as you have done in ages past in redeeming your people, so you will do in this like manner through the name of your Christ who has brought redemption, whose blood covers the sin of everyone who will believe. Oak Park, it would be a travesty if we succeed in only what we can accomplish. We could do everything just real well, and we can make a name for Oak Park Baptist at 1111 Allison Lane. Look at all the things that we have done, all the mission efforts that we're striving to do. But if we do it in our power and under our own strength, on that day it will be found as wood, hay, and stubble. Those who depend upon Christ build with gold, silver, precious stones. When the fiery judgment comes, it will stand on that day. This course of action, this course of mission will look like foolishness to the world. Heck, it might look like foolishness to the rest of the evangelical world. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Though Paul was yielded to the Spirit, he understood that God's work happens in and through the church. And therefore, missions must also be supported, supported with funds. This is what Paul gets to in, in verses 22 through 29. Paul explains that while he's preoccupied with other ministry, that's verse 22, I, I haven't been able to come, I've been hindered, I've been preoccupied with the, the ministry that the Lord has entrusted to me. He's finally in a position to visit Rome. If you're familiar with the story in Acts, really beginning in Acts chapter 19 on to to chapter 28, Paul was resolved, it says in the Spirit. He was resolved, not not in a sense of he had this superficial element that he, no, he had the conviction, no, the Spirit is leading me to take the gospel to Rome 
and to wherever God may lead me. And from that point on, you're seeing God's, Paul's journey be shaped to lead him to Rome. And, and, and right about this time, he's probably writing this letter from, from Corinth. And as Paul makes it clear in our passage, he wants to go to Spain because the gospel is that has yet to be proclaimed there. But he knows he cannot do it alone. And he says, there's a vibrant church out in Rome. I want to get there. I want to be encouraged. And then I want that church to send me to where no man has gone before. However, before he can go to Rome, he must make nearly a thousand mile journey in the opposite direction back to Jerusalem. And I'd love to go maybe through a historical uh, lesson. We kind of did it through Acts, but I know not all of us were here and certainly not all of us remember. Um, but we see that, that Paul's priority here is still for the, to finish the work that needs to be done that he's begun. And yet there is a sense in which there's a priority even for the saints in Jerusalem before he can go to the next thing. There's something to be learned here. We're, we're all very quick. Let's do what has to happen now. But as we're going to see between chapters 19 and 28, Paul getting to Rome is several years. And yet it's not contrary to the mission. It's not contrary. Well, in this case, Paul had collected an offering from predominantly the Gentile churches that he had reached in these missionary efforts. And he had been collecting this offering to help assist the saints in Jerusalem. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem, which was the start of it all, was under great persecution, of which Paul used to participate in. But more specifically, there had been a, a famine that had come upon the land. And, and in those days, when there was a famine, there was no food. There was no water. It was a dire time. And so they're collecting collecting resources to give to the church in, in Jerusalem. We do a very similar thing. Oftentimes it happens to be in Haiti because essentially there's a famine. There's things that are, are causing great poverty. Well, we're not giving to poverty in general. We're giving poverty of the church, caring for the church. And by and large, that's usually what the Scripture is talking about when it says care for the poor. It's talking about the church, God's people. And we model, there it is, worship preceding evangelism. We model what it looks like to be ambassadors for the king so that when people come and see, they want to be a part. Well, Paul says he's got to bring this offering to the church in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, look in verse 27. He says the Gentiles owe it to them. What's his point? Well, his point is, is that the Gentiles have benefited from the mission work that spread from the church in Jerusalem. He came, essentially, from them, and then from Antioch. But he has come, the gospel has come from Jerusalem. It's where Pentecost began, Acts chapter 2. And the church then scattered and brought the good news. And they sacrificed and they gave. Some of them have given their lives so that the gospel may come to them. And he says, if you, have, if you have received spiritual blessings from them, how would you not also give them in physical blessings? It's out of gratitude that the church offered such blessing here, he's saying. 
And as you think about this, I wonder, and I don't know for sure, but as I'm, I'm trying to think of what Paul's doing, he's, yes, he is deeply theological and, and, and understands God's ways of doing things, but he's also a leader. And he's also pragmatic. And he understands he's got to lead these people because he says, I hope to be sent to Spain by you. And I just wonder, maybe he, he's uh, subtly giving an example of what he hopes they will do. Reminding them that they too should be generous for the work of the gospel because someone else had generously given so that they could hear the gospel. And that's what I would say to us. The reason we give is out of gratitude. Again, it's worship. If we harp on give, 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 people won't give. But if you talk about the greatness of God and the greatness of his mission for the praise of his name and you believe in that, you'll give your life to it. It's all about the, the priority, how you put it. It's actually everything in the Scripture. Everything flows out of worship. That's why chapter 12, the practical section of this letter, begins, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, your rational worship. Everything that he's called us to do derives out of worship. It's right here. And so the point that I want us to see, just bringing this into our setting, is that God uses human means to accomplish the spread of the gospel. I once sent a mission letter to someone to which they responded, and I knew that they had the means too, uh, but they responded, um, you shouldn't be asking for money, you should just be trusting God to provide it. And I was a college student, I didn't. I was first learning. I just didn't sound right, but I was like, oh, okay. Well, Paul didn't have a problem asking for money. And he was the apostle, and he was fully dependent upon the Lord. He understands that God's Spirit's working through his people. So I want us to see that, I want you to understand that we're part of that, and the Lord has gifted you and equipped you, not only in your, your abilities, your gifts, but also in the resources that he's given you. Not so that you can build up treasures on earth, but that you may build treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust will not destroy, where the thief cannot break in. And you're to do that to your, to your best of your ability. You know, this is why we've increased our budget this year by 13%. By 13%. I think that's right. Lori might qualm with that. I just did quick math, so it could be. But it's around there. I'm looking at my numbers, people. We increased it from 500,000 roughly to 575,000. If you're hearing this for the first time, shame on you. If you're a member, if you're a member. Why have we done that? And in a sense, we're, we're stretching us so that we might be more dependent upon Christ and learn to let go of the things of this world. But more importantly, over the next year, we hope to engage in new partnerships. Pastor Joshua was praying about some of these. New partnership in Toronto that Gary's trying to, to work up with Pastor JD, who's, who's trying to reach uh, Hispanic immigrants in, in Toronto with the gospel. And they, they've never heard. Right now, Pastor Joshua is exploring a potential work in, in Pittsburgh. And we're praying that God may open up the doors for that. And 
And being able to go in a place where Christ is not named, not saying that Christ isn't named in Pittsburgh, but particular areas in Pittsburgh where people do not know Christ. We also have missionaries in the remotest parts of Asia. We've, we've begun to, uh, to, to, to build relationships with missionaries in Africa who are interested in, in us coming alongside them and assisting them in efforts. And even over the next few years, we hope to plant or, or revitalize uh, churches here in southern Indiana. From New Albany, Clarksville, Sellersburg, Charlestown, Utica, Jeff. Strengthen the churches that are there. Plant new ones if need be. We want to have gospel ambition as Paul wants to go to Spain. Such efforts are driven from a desire to see Christ praised, I trust. Not to build our name. And they're dependent upon His power, but they must also be supported by our funds. They must be. Not only that, such work requires people to go. No doubt Paul was also looking for some from the church in Rome to assist him in his efforts. And in fact, we're going to see next Sunday in, 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 in chapter 16, he just goes through kind of his team who's probably helped him over the time. And, and, and again, I think he's probably implicitly saying, I'm going to need more like these. And that's where we're, our heart's going to be next Sunday. And we do have many like Romans chapter 16, but I pray that we'll have many more. And it's my prayer that the Lord would bring, as the Lord brings us opportunity to partner and explore new works of the gospel, we'll have a heart of worship to gladly sacrifice not only from our wallet, but from our lives. Actually, there's work that we have opportunity to do, but we can't start it because we don't got anybody who wants to go. We need people to go just explore and take a team and lead and go and find out, is that something we can be a part of? If that interests you, come talk to Pastor Gary. You can talk to me. I'm just going to point you to Pastor Gary. Though. And I'm, I'm serious. If, you, if you're interested in missions, you don't have to have it figured out. We'll come alongside you. This is part of us together figuring out, is the Lord opening up those doors? But we can't find out if we don't go. And so I'm asking you, will some of you go? we got two missionaries asking right now, hey, we're looking at our next year calendar. Would you all participate anyway? And right now we say we got nobody. That's a shame in a church like ours. We got nobody? We got no, nobody from the seminary who wants to go? You want to give your life to the gospel? Where are you? And you might say, I don't know about it. I'm not getting mad at you. I'm just getting passionate. <laughs> I love you guys. And all of you dispersed elsewhere. But really. Where are we? And I understand not, not everybody's going to go. Some are going to be cinders, but got, some got to be goers. All right, we've got to wrap this thing up. There's my appeal. But the final task of missions is to be engaged in prayer. So Paul, notice he, he says, I'm confident, verse 29, that I'll come to you when I... And I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I'm confident God's hands upon me. That's what he says. That God is working in this. And there's a sense in which we should be confident because of all the things that we've seen. Not confident in ourselves. We're not sufficient in ourselves. But we're, 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 we're confident in the one who makes us sufficient ministers of a new covenant. But yet, in verses 30 through 33, Paul says, I appeal to you. I beg you. 
I plead with you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. There's the right order. The the love of the Spirit that produces out of you. To strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. The word strive is where we get our word agonize. I want you to agonize, wrestle in prayer with me and for me that this may happen. Some of you say, I struggle in prayer. That's what happens. That's, That's right. It's not easy. And so he calls us, struggle with me. Pleading. And he goes on and he he gets three ways that he asks them to pray. And I want you to hear in your mind, these are three ways you can be praying for your brothers and sisters overseas right now. As we've prayed. Number one, he prays for safety. Pray that I'd be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Pray for me. He goes on. Not only that, but for success. Give me success in this last effort. I'm going to bring this offering to the church in Jerusalem, but I'm not sure how they're going to respond from the Gentiles. Pray that it would be acceptable to them, that they would see the love and gesture here, that that our mission would be successful. And then for his own refreshment. That if all things go well in Jerusalem, then I might come to you, he says, with joy and be refreshed in your company. So right there, you can be praying for every mission effort that is coming out of this church. You can pray for safety, success in God's terms, and refreshment in the Lord. If you know the story is told in Acts, this is part of the reason like I had Pastor Joseph, Pastor Joseph, Pastor Joshua um, read the end of Acts where Paul arrives in Rome. If, if you're familiar with the story, Paul does arrive in Rome. And he does so with the full blessing of Christ. And if you can recall that passage that we just read 45 minutes ago, there was joy and fellowship of the brothers. People were coming from even taverns. Imagine that. I think that's pretty cool. And yet, he he arrives in chains. He arrives in chains, and this is three years later. Three years later. A little over three years from writing this. And in those three years, yeah, he arrived in Jerusalem, and the church received him. But a mob of unbelieving Jews sought to kill him. Plotted against him, saw him, brought a riot, and tried to kill him. But you know what? He was delivered out of their hands by being arrested. And he's saying, Lord, answered your prayers. He was arrested, and he spent two years in jail. And no doubt, I'm sure he struggled in prayer, and he was trusting that the believers in Rome had not forgotten about him that they were continuing to struggle in their prayers with him on his behalf to God. And after two years, new order comes in play. He said, he's appealed to Caesar. He didn't even have to do that. He could have been released, but because he appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he shall go. And he got all expenses paid trip to Rome. Now, if you know that story, there was a big catch with that, that deal. 
That was a year voyage where the ship wrecks and nearly everyone would have lost their lives, but Paul is told that not a, not a person on this ship will perish. And I don't know what that was like that day that they arrived ashore, but he was trusting that that day would start the refreshment that he needed. Church history tells us that Paul made it to Spain. We don't have any evidence of that. Certainly the gospel did go to Spain. We don't know if that's because of Paul or not. But it really doesn't matter. Because what we see in Paul is a man on mission to take the good news of the kingdom of Christ wherever God would take him. And he was fueled by worship. He was dependent upon Christ. He was supported by the church through their funds and prayers, engaged in prayer. And to this day, brothers and sisters, you and I are benefiting from his efforts. We're benefiting. So why would we ever think that we could engage in mission in any other way? It's my prayer that we would be people who engage in missions this way. So that although it may, our efforts may not come together in the next few months, it may take years, and, and perhaps some of the things that we're longing to do, maybe they won't come to fruition. But we can know that as we are pursuing the glory of God in Christ and His name being praised where it is not yet praised, we can trust that we are walking in the will of God. And that's where I trust that our hearts will be and that's where our hearts long to be. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, let's stand and let's sing. I know I kind of caught the music people off guard. Give them time to get up here. But let's sing Let's praise and respond to this word and worship. And may our worship not end with the benediction, but may the benediction truly send us out and be a word of blessing as we go to seek to bless the word world with the word of Christ. You guys ready? <laughs>